0: Allow me a second to address again. When was the last time you heard a pastor say that? 1 <laughs> Samuel chapter 21. We start today a new chapter and a new theme. And we have entitled chapter 21, Slipping Away. We will also be in Hebrews chapter 7 if you need a chance. Hebrews is in the New Testament. New. Slipping Away. Me in prayer and we'll get started. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for Cecily. Lord, thank you for every teacher, for every awana worker, every person who's ever spent time trying to teach her about you. Father, I ask that you bless this young lady's life, that you would take care of her. Protect her from all the garbage of the world, Lord. And Father, do great things with her life. And Father, allow us to study your word for just a moment. In Jesus' precious name. Ever feel that your relationships are slipping away? They were married, but since the argument they had a few days earlier, they hadn't been talking to each other. Instead, they were giving each other written notes. One evening, he gave her a paper where it said, Wake me up tomorrow at 6 a.m. The next morning, he woke up and saw that it was 9 o'clock. Naturally, he got very angry. But as he turned around, he found a note on his pillow that simply said, Wake up, at 6 o'clock. <laughs> Just a little side note, if you're giving notes to each other, you need help. But have you ever felt that your country, that your country is slipping away? Have you ever felt that you were slowly slipping away from Jesus? You see, it's very easy for a country, it's very easy for a church, it's very easy for a Christian to slip away and not even realize it. As we begin our morning study today, we look at slipping away in the life of David. Our first thought as we start today is this: The greatest spiritual threat is lack is a lack of focus. The greatest spiritual threat is a lack of focus. Think with me for a second when Jesus talked the attitudes, He said the pure in heart will see God. There's a connection there with a, a pure life has clear thinking. We get pulled off sides very easily by things that don't really matter. We get pulled off sides by issues that are sort of our pet issues, but they're really not Jesus's issues. If we would only do it this way, and God is thinking, that's probably not even in my top 20 that I care about. If we would focus more on Jesus, you'll start to see the clarity in the fog starts to slip away. I taught uh, a few weeks ago on Saturday night with our young adult class. And I said, we could come up with rules and regulations and things that are important, come up with a different list. And here's the problem with that, we might miss your thing and you might think you're okay. Or we might spend too much time on something that doesn't quite matter. And I told them this, listen, you're not sure if you should move in with somebody before you get married. You're not sure if you should cheat. You're not sure if you should uh, break the law on this. You're not sure if you should get drunk and do drugs. You're not sure. I said, if you would just focus on Jesus, you will begin to see clarity, very clear in all of these decisions. You see, I can't give you a list every week of what to and not to do. I can't give you all of that. But if I can tell you this, you want the list, you want to know what you're supposed to do? Focus on Jesus. And you'll start to see all of these other things fall into place. The greatest threat in 1 Samuel 21 to King David becoming a king is not Saul, who's king now, who's trying to kill him. The greatest threat is his own spiritual life becoming a casualty to expediency. We're going to break this chapter down into three parts and four messages. We're going to break it down into three parts. We're going to be looking at slipping away in the right place. And we're going to, see, we're going to do this twice today. This part, this is going to be a two-part message. We'll finish that next week. And then we'll be looking at slipping away in the wrong place. And then lastly, we'll be looking at slipping away in fear. As David's life is an example, we're going to look at just one verse. Now you're wondering why it's taken us so long to go through this book. <coughs> but we're going to look at just one verse today about a spiritual life slipping away. Look at verse 1 with me. Then came David to Nob, to the Himalai. The priest and the was afraid to meet him with David. Remember, David's running from Saul; if he's trying to kill him. The Hemanlech is thinking, "If I help him, Saul will kill me." And said unto them, "Why art thou alone, and no man with thee?" Now, a couple things. Where is Nob? Well, Nob is a city about a mile northeast of Jerusalem. The city Nob literally means the city of priests. We've seen this in our study before. The city of Nob is a gathering place where priests and young prophets would go. It is a spiritual training place. But who is a Himalaya? Well, he is the great, great grandson of Eli, the high priest, all the way back in chapter 1. How many of you were here when we did First Samuel 1 Samuel 1? Raise your hand. The numbers get smaller, don't they? Mm-hmm. All the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we found out something important about Eli. If you like to put notes in your Bible, put down 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30 and 36. Because in 1 Samuel 2, verse 30 and 36, it said that Eli's descendants were disqualified from being a priest. But yet, here the high priest, the priest that David goes to, is Eli's great-grandson, and yet he is disqualified from the job he has. The very first warning sign of a spiritual life slipping away is this, number one. It has leadership that is decaying. It has leadership that is decaying. Not only did they have a king, King Saul, who was clearly rejected by God, but here they have a priest who has been disqualified by God. A king rejected by God and a priest disqualified by God. How can a nation, a church, a family thrives spiritually when they have leadership that is decaying from within. Say amen. 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 David is in despair and he goes where every believer should go. You know where he goes? He goes to the man of God. i like to tell you this. Listen, just so we're all on the same page. I do not work nine to five. In fact, I have never worked as your pastor do not hire me. You do not pay me that way. You call me to shepherd this flock and to lead this flock. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. I did a wedding on Friday. I did a funeral on Monday, and I did a wedding on Friday. And uh, they didn't pay me for the wedding. Sandier said, "You should have said something." I said, "No. I tell every wedding and every funeral. I don't, I don't care. You don't have to pay me as long as I get to talk about Jesus." You don't let me talk about Jesus. It's five grand a word. <laughs> and Sandra said, well, why didn't you tell them? And I said, you know what? Oakland Woods takes care of me so that I can go to places like this to simply share the good news that Jesus sings. Amen. There's a whole group of people who weren't ready for it. But nonetheless, they were told that God loves them and Jesus died for them and they must be born again. Yeah. I say all that to say this. My number is in the top of your newsletter. So Pastor, it's late. I'm really having a tough time. What should I do? You should call me. You should reach out. theres I might not answer because I might be asleep, but I will try to answer. You say, well, I, I feel bad doing it. I've had people call me at 3 in the morning. I'm thinking about doing something horrible. No, don't do it. We talk about this. You need to know. And in time of stress, in time of struggle, that you can reach out to the man of God in your life. And by the way, secondly, you need to have a man of God in your life. You need to have a pastor in your life. Very few people do. David reaches out to the man of God in his life. And I want to give you three things about leadership that just came to my mind when I was studying this. First of all, every nation has a leadership going to enter into an area I don't like to, but I'm going to. How can America be blessed when America's leaders blaspheme his name? This coming 4th of July, America needs better leadership. From the mayor to the president. Let me just say this. In 1998, I preached a message and I said, I'm glad the economy is doing well, but the President of the United States needs to do better morally. And in 2018, I will say the same thing. I'm glad the economy is doing well, but the President of the United States needs to do better morally and set a better example for our children. Amen. You know, when it was Clinton, I got better eight minutes. <laughs> next every home has a leader dad not politically correct but it's bible correct you're supposed to be the leader of your home this little joke goes an army brat was boasting about his father to a navy brat my dad is an engineer he can do anything how about you know the alps yes said the navy brat my dad built them Then the Navy kids spoke. And and do you know the Dead Sea? Yes. Well, it's my dad who killed it. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Army. Every dad, dad, listen to me. Every boy and every little girl needs to be proud of their father. They might not like you. In fact, if they like you, you're probably doing it wrong if they're in their teenage years. You're doing it wrong if your kids like you, sir, when they're teenagers. You're not supposed to be your friend. They have plenty of friends. They only have one dad. I've told my son this. At my funeral, I expect him to get up and talk. And he's like, oh, that's turtle." I said, I don't care. But at my funeral, you need to say, my dad loved Jesus, my dad loved my mom, and my dad loved the Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> Just not always in that order, but he loved all three of them. And you probably should add that my dad loved his mom. Listen, sir, I didn't ask your kids to like you. I didn't ask for them to think of everything that you think is right. But they need to respect you, and they need to look up and say, I'm proud of my dad, the way he conducts himself morally, the way he talks, the way he leads our family. My dad is the spiritual leader of this home. You want to change America? If I could get every dad to do that, what a difference this country. Your taxes would go down. Number three. Every church has a lead, and that lead is the pastor. As the lead person in this church, I hope I lead by example. I want us to have more than a beautiful building, and we have a beautiful building, amen? Amen. Amen. The people that helped design it are in here, and you helped design and create this building, you did a great job from the carpet to the color of the walls to the trim on the walls, you did a great job. We have a beautiful building. But I don't want us to have a beautiful building. I want us to love to minister to people. I want us to be blown away and just praise God every time we see somebody getting baptized. Every time we see somebody getting saved. Every time we see somebody getting off drugs. Every time we make an impact in this community for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything we do, all the big things, Fall Festival, BBS, the children's shoe giveaway at Christmas. Everything we do has a real method of reason behind it. It is to point people to Jesus Christ. And nothing else matters other than that. It is a burden sometimes to reach people. But I want you to have that burden. To reach people in Africa, to reach people in China, and to be part of what we're going to be starting this fall in planting churches in our local area and leaving behind local New Testament churches. But I'll ask you this. How can David thrive during a time of spiritual decay? How? You know what the answer is? Well, if the president would just get saved, if the governor would just, if we would change the Supreme Court, if we would act this law, if this would have, if the pastor would get right with God, I'd get right with God, if I had a better dad and a better mom, if, 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 no... The way you get right during a time of spiritual decay is keeping your eye on the ultimate leader, Jesus Christ. I do not think it's an accident. Look at this. I don't think it's an accident that David, during his time of crisis, what does he need? He needs a king, and he needs a priest. Jesus is our king, and Jesus is our priest. He is the royal high priest. With that, turn over to Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to go over something that I'm going to take a shot that at least half of you have never heard before. That's always dangerous when a pastor says it, because there's a pretty good chance it's going to be heresy. But I mark me now, this is not heresy. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 7. As we meet a man, and as we talk about Jesus being our royal high priest, we meet a man by the name of Mount we will first meet Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. And in Genesis chapter 14, Abraham has a great victory. And Abraham comes back and he tithes to Melchizedek. By the way, anyone ever tells you, well, tithing, that's under the law. We're under grace. Abraham did not live under the law. Abraham lived under grace. The law does not come until Moses comes down to Sinai. Tithing is not a law issue. Tithing is a grace issue. Abraham will tithe to him. And when he goes out to meet Abraham, it is not coincidental here. These are not things that Pastor Steve reported. These are long-standard Orthodox beliefs. It is not coincidental that when Abraham goes out up there, Abraham, he offers Abraham, Melchizedek offers him bread and wine. Melchizedek offers Abraham bread and wine. These if you've been in church long enough, are the symbols of the cross. When we do communion, we do it. We have drink and we have bread. And what did Jesus do when he instituted the Lord's Supper? With drink and with bread. The bread represents his body, unleavened bread with no sin. The drink represents his blood. It is not a coincidence that these are offered in Genesis chapter 14. So who is this guy? I almost said the cat. Teenagers too much. <laughs> Who is this guy named Melchizedek? We'll throw this up here, right? Fascinating things about Melchizedek. First of all, we find out he is the king of Salem. Salem is another name for Jerusalem. Jerusalem, I mean, you don't even have to know your Bible to know Jerusalem is a special place. Look at the news. His name means king of righteousness. He is the priest of the most high God. Check this out. He has no mother and no father. Have you ever known somebody without a mother or without a father? Now, they might not have known them. Everybody in here who didn't have a biological mother, raise your hand. Now, you need to remember that because when the AI takes over, that's the trick question. If anybody raises their hand, we kill them, they're a cyborg. (laughs) I thought that was pretty funny, John. AI, artificial intelligence, it's going to take over the world. You'll be surprised when it happens. Anyway. He also has no descendants. And it also says in the Bible, get this out, he has no beginning or end. Um, If you've been in church long enough, you know that the Bible calls Jesus the Alpha and Omega. He has no beginning and he has no end. Jesus is a priest, not after the order of the Jewish priest of Aaron, but after Melchizedek. I believe, and many I'm in the mainstream here, that Melchizedek is the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, walk with me for a second. If you've ever been to a Mexican restaurant, they have you know, chili con carne. Carne is a Spanish word for flesh. So when I say pre-incarnate, it means when Jesus did not have a body. Jesus did not start in Bethlehem. He has always been the second part of the Trinity. And when God created the world and the universe in Genesis chapter 1, he said, let us make man after our image. Jesus was always the second part of the Trinity. But where was Jesus before Bethlehem? He sometimes appears as the angel of the Lord, and here he is, the pre-flesh, the pre-incarnate Christ, is an Melchizedek that <coughs> Abraham is going to as his high priest. If you're taking notes, only Jesus could be holy enough to be begin a priesthood. He could follow after. You see, all the Jewish priests were called Levites. They were in the tribe of Levites. Moses was a Levite. Moses had a brother, Aaron. Remember, Aaron is the one, his rod, he throws it down. Aaron does a lot of the speaking. Check it out in Exodus. There's a whole book about it. But Aaron starts what's entitled, basically, the Levitical priest. So Ahimelech is a Levitical priest. Every priest that you see in the Bible that's doing all of the Old Testament work is in the line of Aaron. They are Levitical Levites. They are Levitical priests. By the way, that's one of the reasons why the Jews and Israel cannot do a sacrifice, because they don't know who's in what tribe anymore, and they don't know who the Levites are. But Jesus is not in a priest order after Aaron. Jesus is in a priest order after Melchizedek. But there's a problem. No human being is going to do that for the Son of God, the second part of the Trinity. Only Jesus could begin the priest order in Genesis chapter 14 that he is a priest of. You say, well, I'm not sure the Bible is true. Really? Really? You realize that, and those are the type of moments that just make you go, "Nobody could think this up." We got Paul and writing Hebrews, and I believe he wrote Hebrews. You got Moses all the way back there writing Genesis and giving us what happened with Abraham. Thousands and thousands of years separated between the two, and yet it all connects. Almost the beginning of the Bible, almost the end of the Bible, and yet it all connects. The Melchizedek is the priest that Jesus is after only Jesus is holy enough to start that priesthood. Amen. So in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 21 just take a little moment let's let the word of God wash over us as we look at this man by the name of Melchizedek. For those priests were made without an oath. But this with an oath by him that said unto him, the Lord swear and not repent. Thou art a priest forever at the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were made priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continued ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that came unto God by him, seeing he liveth to make intercessions for those. In the Old Testament, that physical priest would go in and make a sacrifice, and he became the interconnector between us and God. Today, the interconnector between us and God is still a priest, but for if you know Christ as your personal Savior, that priest is Jesus. Wherefore is he able to save them to the uttermost that unto God by Him, seeing He ever lived to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners. And made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sin, and then for the people's. For this he did once, and when he offered up himself. The Old Testament priest would go in and offer a daily sacrifice for the sins of the people. And the people would see the smoke and they would put their faith in what God was going to do. It was a symbol of the Messiah to come. And before the Old Testament priest would offer a sacrifice, he'd have to offer a sacrifice first for himself. Because he was also a sinner. Just like our sweet little girl getting baptized, she could not save herself. The priest could not save himself. He would offer a sacrifice then he would offer a sacrifice for the nation. But not Jesus... Because Jesus was sinless after the order of Melchizedek, which was him. He offered the sacrifice once and for all. He was on the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, no more do we do the flawed man. We have a royal high priest. And his name is Jesus. In fact, 1 Peter 2.9, if you'd like to put notes in your Bible, says this. Of us, if you're a believer. But ye are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood. If you are here today and you know Christ as your personal Savior, you are a priest. Now don't go out and buy a collar. <laughs> you are a priest. You are not a priest like the Levit- Levitical priest after the order of Aaron. You are not a priest after the order of, a spir- of some denomination or man-made group or even a church. You are a priest after the same order of Melchizedek. You are a priest after the order of Jesus Christ. Say, Pastor Steve, who's the spiritual leader of your home? I am. I am the spiritual priest of my home. See, if you offer sacrifices, well, I'll tell you what, there's been times I've thought about my teenage son as well. I kind of get sometimes Abraham and Isaac going up that hill, and I'm thinking, yeah, I don't know if I'd pull back. But anyways. (laughs) David didn't have the leadership of a priest working. Do you know what he had? You have Jesus. Christians, you cannot separate Jesus the priest. Oh, thankfully he's our priest. I can go to Jesus and He takes away my sin. He lets me talk right to the God of creation when I when I have cancer or when things aren't going well, when I'm frustrated, when I want to cry, when I'm depressed, when I'm happy. My priest allows me to go right into the throne room of God. But you cannot separate Jesus the priest. And Jesus the King. He is a king priest, a royal priest. See, when you start to pull that authority out of Jesus, well, there's two things that happen. When we remove the authority of Jesus, there's two things that happen. We begin to accept evil and we die. Walk with me. You see this in the country. We deny Jesus and we just started to accept evil. We just start to accept murder. We just start to accept things. And there's going to come a time, if we don't pull back, where we're going to start murdering our old people and we're going to start murdering mentally and physically disabled people because it's too expensive. Why? Because we pull. You'd say that would never happen. It's what they're doing in Europe. When you remove Jesus from a country, you start to accept evil and we die. We have lost life. We have lost our security. We have lost our peace. I don't have to show you video from 9-11. You have seen the news. You have seen the Detroit news. You know what's going on. We have lost peace in this country. For some of you, there's people right now, you have a gun on you. You take a gun almost everywhere you go. And you know what? If you're a lady, I I don't blame you for one minute. Because as a nation, we have walked far from God. And it is dangerous to be a woman. You see this in a church. A church denies Jesus. They don't deny purity. They deny personal holiness. They never call anyone to repentance. And evil sets in. They pick at each other. They put down sinners for being sinners. They lose focus. And they pile on things that don't matter. And eventually that church loses its life and it becomes a dead church full of dead <coughs> believers with nothing but legalism inside of them. And you can see it in a believer. You eliminate Jesus' authority in your life, and you will start to accept sinful things. Listen, I've never known anyone who was into their word and praying and then got up and made the announcement, I'm becoming an atheist. You know what happens? You're following Jesus, but then you slowly start to pull back his authority, and you start to do things that you're not supposed to do. Nobody ever logically walks away from Jesus. They walk away from Jesus because of their lifestyle and their actions. And then your heart becomes hardened. And you slowly slip away from Jesus. And you end up doing things you never thought you would do. And then you begin to die spiritually. You see a lot of them. Know the lesson? Keep your eye on Jesus. And you'll end up where you're supposed to be. Men will let you down. The news will get you depressed, but if you keep your eye on our royal high priest, he will keep you from slipping away. I want to close with two things. When Jesus is king and priest, there's two things that happens. Number one, he has authority in my life. He has authority in my life. I had this happen one time. I was coaching uh, uh, junior high baseball for our Christian school we had a uh, we shared a field. We used a we didn't have our own field, so we used a community field. And our rivals were the homeschool, Richardson Homeschool. They were our rivals. And we knew some of them, and they knew some of us, and we always always a close game. We got to the field, and there they were on our field. They were playing, starting to play another game, and I went up to the umpire and said, "Listen, we have this field." And the umpire said to me, "I'm the umpire. This game is about to start. Get off this field." I have the authority. So I, this is before cell phones were widespread. One of our parents had a cell phone. So I got the cell phone. I called our athletic director, and he said, uh-uh. So he gave me the number and called the parks department. I called the parks department, and I got the parks guy, and I said, hey, we're Canyon Creek uh, at Christian School, and we're supposed to be playing here. There's another team here. And uh, he said, no, not by schedule. They messed up. It is your field. So I said, what do I tell them? He goes, you tell them to get off the field. They were about halfway through the first inning and I walked out to that umpire and I said, Sir, you need to get off this field. This is our field. And he says about whose authority. And I said, here's the parks director. He has instructed me to tell you, I have the authority. You need to get off the field. He told me to call the police and have you arrested. If he could have punched me, he would have. You know what he had to do? and to end that game. And because it was our rivals, it was just a little sweeter. <laughs> Next time we played them, boy, they, they wanted to fight and we beat them eight to nine. But anyways, they wanted to. It was a great thing. You know why? Does Jesus have authority in your life to simply tell you what to do and not to do? I'm not asking for that authority. I don't want that authority in your life because I don't want that responsibility. But does Jesus have the simple authority to tell you you don't drink that? You don't go there. You don't do that. You don't talk to somebody that way. You don't treat a child that way. You don't walk away from that marriage. You don't act this way. You love people like this. Does Jesus have that type of authority in your life? Pastor, I love baby Jesus. You know why you love baby Jesus? Because babies never tell anybody anything. I've never yet had a baby rebuke me. But King Jesus demands unquestioned loyalty to his authority. If Jesus is your king, he'll have authority in your life. Number two, he is my king. He is the God of my life. He is the God of my life. I want to say this to you. There's certain things I do not understand, and I've been studying this and going through this last few weeks. But there's a difference between the trinity and Trinith, trinitheism. This is a little bit of a theological moment. Trinitheism is simply this. The trinity is that God exists three in one with three distinct personalities, three distinct offices, three distinct reasons he's supposed to do things, but yet he is still one. Three in one. No one can explain that to you. Trinitheism is that all three parts of the trinity are separate gods. In fact, that's what most Muslims will say about Christians. You believe in three gods. No, we don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God with three distinct personalities and different actions and words. In fact, there's another group, Jesus only group, and it's a cult. And they believe that Jesus is only God. There is God the Father, then Jesus. Now Jesus is the Holy Spirit, and that is the only God that we have. That is completely false and unbiblical. Listen, I don't understand everything about the Trinity and about his deity. But I've settled this one issue in my life, that Jesus is God. And if he really is God, and if he did call his shot about dying on a cross and coming back again, that is a man, a God I need to listen to. If he can conquer the grave, he can take care of all this other nonsense in my life. You see, if he is really our God, We will bend over to serve him. We will leap at opportunities. We will surrender to the mission field. We will take our summer, take our summer, our precious, this is my vacation. And we will take it and go on a missions trip. But, Pastor, this is when we go to Disneyland. You need Jesus more than you need Mickey. saying not to go to Mickey. have <laughs> never been to Disneyland. This is what it's like. Going to the Department of Motor Vehicle and standing in line. <laughs> if you go between April and October, it's like going to the DMV on the sun and standing in line. So you're not missing anything. If Jesus is your God, you will bend over backwards to serve him. I want to close with one of my favorite stories. The story goes of an incredibly wealthy man, and had a son. His wife died a childbirth, but the, young, the man cherished the son, and he was the epic of his life, the center of everything, and he just loved his son, and his son went to college, but the Vietnam War came about, and his son said, I can't stand back and not serve my country. So his son after graduating from college, enlisted in the Marines. And this wealthy man's son went to the Marines and he went and he died in Vietnam. It crushed the spirit of the old man, his wealthy man till finally till finally he died. Well the wealthy man had the huge estate, and in this estate he had one of the best art collections in the state incredibly rare things from Rembrandt to Van Gogh, wealthy paintings and the time came because he had no heirs his son had no children, they were going to auction off everything he had so wealthy people and investors and art lovers came and they came and they were there for the auction, the auctioneer got up and said we're going to begin the auction with this painting and he produced a painting that the old man, the old wealthy man had painted of his son and the man loved art but he couldn't paint at all And the artist, the painting looked very poorly. It was a simple painting of his son in his marine uniform. And he painted that picture out of love. And the auctioneer got up and said, "Who who will give me $100 for this? Who will give me $50 for this painting? Who will give me? And the crowds, they endured it for a moment, but they began to turn on the auctioneer. People started shouting, get this out of here. We came for the masterpieces. We came to buy the expensive pieces. We don't want this picture of the sun. It's garbage. It looks like an amateur did it. We don't want this. And the auctioneer ignored it. And he kept saying, Who will give me $100? Who will give me $50. And he kept going and kept going through it. To finally, the butler, who had been servant to the wealthy man for decades, and he knew the little boy, the son, when he was a little boy, and he loved it. <coughs> so finally, the butler raised his hand and said, Give you $20 for it. The auctioneer said, Sold. And then he said, This auction is closed. <coughs> and began to walk off. The people shout, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Get that! We have not paid or bought any of the masterpieces. We came and you all you did is sell that amateurish drawing, that pathetic painting. All you did. Why are you doing this? Get back up there and start the auction again. The auctioneer got up and says, You don't understand. There were specific instructions in the will that whoever bought the painting of the sun got it all. Is there a part of your heart? Or is there action? Or is there something you hold back and you reserve for yourself? It's time today. If you're saved, he's your priest. But it's time today to put Jesus back on the throne where he belongs. Yeah. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? The musicians are going to come forward and we're going to sing a song.